If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Deuteronomy chapter 5. We will be primarily, even though we will start in chapter 5, we will primarily be dealing with chapters 6, 7, and 8 today. Again, what we are about to do is engage in... We are about to engage in the, the explanation that Moses will provide us about the law. That Moses himself is going to explain what the law is to mean to us. And we said that, again, this is part of the, sort of the two arcs of Deuteronomy. That one arc is leading us to understand that the promise of God given to Abraham, that he would have a nation that is a multitude of people that would inherit the land, that he would bless Abraham, and he would bless those who bless Abraham, would come true regardless of what the people did with the law. Regardless of the failure of the law, God's promises will always be true. But the second arc of that is, again, the giving of the law and the explanation of the law to the people. We see this beginning in chapter 5 already. We read there, beginning in verse 1, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. Notice Moses combines those two sort of overarching promises. He says, this that I'm explaining to you today is not the covenant that God made with your forefathers. The covenant that he made with Abraham was distinct from what I'm going to explain to you today. But nevertheless, the covenant that I'm explaining to you today is part and parcel of taking the land. So part of the the truth of the promise coming true was in their obedience to the law. It is a tension that we've talked about before. But nevertheless, today, we start to explain what that law is. Part of the problem of Deuteronomy, if you've read through Deuteronomy, and as I've studied it, I've found that it is incredibly difficult to actually organize the book. So the majority of Moses' preaching his sermon occurs from chapter 6 through chapter 26. It's confusing because it doesn't seem to follow rhyme or reason at time. There are certain chapters that are laid out well, and we kind of understand why those particular laws are grouped together. And you can tell that this is the way it is because there are basically descriptions at the top of every chapter given by the editors of your Bible, and almost every Bible has them, telling you what that chapter has or that section of text has. So for instance, most of you above chapter 5 will have something written read that sort of summarizes what chapter 5 is like, the Ten Commandments. Most of you will have that. Chapter 6, the greatest commandment. Chapter 9, not because of righteousness. And I'm reading directly out of my version of Scripture. But you'll notice as you get further back, pretty soon, pretty soon, uh, especially back in like chapter 22 and 23 and 24, the authors, or the editors, excuse me, of this version of Scripture, and probably your version of Scripture too, begin to kind of give up on the describing of what laws are actually found there, and they start to call them things like various laws. And then later on, miscellaneous laws. I don't know what the difference between a various law section and a miscellaneous law section is, but you can tell that they're, they're looking at the text and they're saying, I, I don't really know what to do with this. 
even more important than that for us, it's one thing to describe the kind of laws that are being given, but we don't think that Moses is just giving laws here. This ought to be an explanation of the law. And as an explanation of the law, there ought to be a rhyme and a reason to it. So what I'm proposing is how we are going to go through the book of Deuteronomy. I'm not saying that this is the way to read Deuteronomy. I think that I have good reasons for reading the book of Deuteronomy this way. But I think that the book of Deuteronomy is an explanation of the law, and that law is specifically the Ten Commandments. And I think that there are sections of text that deal explicitly with each one of these commandments. That doesn't mean that every single law fits neatly into one of them. There are miscellaneous laws, and there are various laws that come. We will explain those in time. But just to give you a sense of why I think that it's laid out that way. Take, for instance, what we will be talking about today, the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Right before he says that in verse 6 of chapter 5, Moses says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In chapter 6, verse 12, we have that exact same phrase happening. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In chapter 7, you have the same sort of idea. In verse 8, he brought you, he redeemed you from the house of slavery. In chapter 8, the exact same thing, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, is repeated in 8.14. Three times in these two or three chapters, we have that repetition that God is the one who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, it does occur later in chapter 13, but we'll explain that when we get there. But you'll notice that as we go through this, even though he warns about the idols that are all over the land. He is not warning Israel in, in chapters 6, 8, or excuse me, 6, 7, and 8. I missed 7 there. That's tough. It's counting is more difficult than preaching at times. Um, you'll notice that he is warning them about the idols that are in the land, but he does not warn them about committing idolatry, like literal idolatry, like making small idols. He doesn't do that because idol worship is the second commandment. And then when we start chapter 9, what does he start talking about? Chapter 9, verse 3, God is a consuming fire. Remember, we, we talked about that last week. You saw God come down on the mountain as a fire, but he had no form. Therefore, you are not to make idols out of him. Later on, he starts calling them stubborn people. This is the first time that sort of language has been picked up since the golden calf incident of Exodus where they made an idol. They are stiff-necked because cattle are stiff-necked as well. Then, and he actually turns to the, um, the actual event of the golden calf and the tablets of stone in chapter 10. Chapter 11 is a continuation of that. When we get to chapter 12 then, all of a sudden, God starts talking about where he's going to place his name. He talks about my name will dwell in that place. I will make a sanctuary. I will be worshipped here and my name will dwell there. That continues through chapter 13 and then through chapter 14 where he talks about you are the sons of the Lord, you carry his name. The Lord God will place his name there in verse 24 of chapter 14. And of course, name language is exactly the same kind of thing that comes up in the third commandment. You will not use my name in vain. Now, it's not that that word does not occur earlier, but it explodes in chapter 12. Five times, God talks about putting his name somewhere or using his name in chapter 12. Then, of course, we have... The fourth commandment, which is the Sabbath. The Sabbath dealing with these groups of sevens. And what do we have in chapter 15? The sabbatical year. 
Six years you can have slaves, but that seventh year they go free. He starts talking about Passover. Passover originally in Exodus was not a week long. It was a, a momentary thing. You're going to go and do this tonight. But the celebration of the Passover from the book of Deuteronomy is a whole week long. And on Passover, you are to do no work. He talks about the festival of booths in there. Same, a week worth of celebration, just like the Sabbath is about a week. You can keep going on and, and sort of following it through. We're not going to do all of that today. But you can see that I think Deuteronomy is laid out to have one commandment and then an explanation of that commandment as Moses works through the text. Today, for us, the commandment is the very first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, or in some versions, no other gods beside me. And you can understand from that statement why there needs to be an explanation of that. For many of us, we kind of know what the gist of that is getting at, but just reading the words doesn't really clarify stuff. What, what does that actually mean? We can't have a God before him or beside him. Does it mean as long as, like in our power rankings of gods, the Yahweh is number one, then he's okay because there's nothing beside him. That's not like 1A and 1B. Or there's, there's not really any comp. As long as you have him as number one, then, then he's okay. Or, frankly, as long as you serve him alone. You ignore all the other gods. You say, all I'm going to do is serve Yahweh. I will just serve the God who brought us out of the land of Egypt. But you don't ever do it with passion. You don't ever do it with conviction. You do it simply because it's your default. Is that okay? What does it mean that we are to have no other God beside him? We find out what that means in chapters 6, 7, and 8. We begin reading in 6 verse 1. Now this is the commandment the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Simply put, what does it mean that you'll have no other gods beside the one true and living God? It means that you must love the Lord your God. You must love him. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your might. You are not simply to kind of go through and do service to him. You're not simply to say, what is important is that I only serve Yahweh. I only serve the one true and living God, but where my heart is doesn't matter at all. God says that is foolishness. You cannot, if you are going to have any other guys beside me, do anything but serve me with every fiber of your being. 
Jesus says this is the greatest of all the commandments, and on this commandment hang all of the law and the prophets. You are to love the Lord your God with everything you have. But notice that this love is also not divorced from serving. When he talks about loving the Lord your God, we know that it is not just serving and doing what God commands you. You can't just do rote duty before the Lord and think that that's okay. That is not what God wants for you because that will never sustain you. You have to love him with everything you have, but at the same time, love is doing the commandments. Notice how he sets that up. Beginning, before we even get to verse 4, which is the rightfully placed center of all Old Testament worship, right? Jews everywhere, even today, will get up and they will repeat the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. They will do it in much more awesome ways because they'll repeat it in Hebrew, which we're not going to do today. But nevertheless, it's still got a good ring to it in English. They will do that today, right? They will get up and they will say that because it is the center of all their worship. But that doesn't mean that you do not work, you do not serve the Lord. Notice verses 1 through 3 of that focus so much on commandments, on commandments and on commandments. We sometimes think that in the New Testament we get away from this. That love is really an emotive love. That love is simply the thing that we feel toward God. And as long as we feel good with God, then that means that we love him. But Jesus says these words in John 14, beginning in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not Love me does not keep my words, and the word you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. The love that you have for God, that you are commanded to have for God, to have no other God besides him, is not just an emotive love, but it is a love that is demonstrated in your obedience to what he has called you to be. But it is not just that you are to love him, you are to love him always. Notice what it says, you shall teach them diligently, in verse 7, to your children. These commands, all these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them. When you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them on a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You never, ever get away from these things. There's never a break this isn't somebody who you love and serve with all your heart on Sundays or on Saturdays or on Wednesday evenings. You don't set aside time for it. You love him all the time with everything you've got, always, forevermore. Notice that these things are always present reminders. You lie down, you rise up. doesn't matter. You remember these things and you're teaching them to your children. Write them on the doorpost so that when you leave, you will see it. When you come back, you'll see it. Put it on your wrist right? So you walk around and you know, I need to love the Lord my God with everything I have. Put it as a front lip between your eyes so that every time you look out, you'll know, I need to love the Lord my God with all my heart. You love him with all your heart. You love him all the time, and you love him with all of your fear. Verse 10, and when the Lord God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, to give you 
with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat them and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord you shall fear. You shall serve him by his name, you shall swear. You shall not go after gods, other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord of God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and the statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of God, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in times to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has command- Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might give us in. He might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. You are to fear God. He says, part of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul is also to fear him. There are times when people only want to remember the good things that God has done for them. And they think that this is what is going to inspire love for God. We are not to think of God as as something angry and wrathful above us because that would inspire fear and fear is not love. That's true. Fear is not love. But fear pushes you back to the Lord. He warns them, Not just about falling away, but he warns them about the blessings that he's going to give them. You're going to go into a land, and it's a land that you didn't have to work for. It's a land that's already been planted. It's a land that's already been dug with houses that have already been built. You're going to go in, and you're going to possess it. And when you do, there is a trouble here. There's a trouble in thinking that I've given you all these good things, but that I am not a terrible, wrathful, fearful God. You need to fear me. So much people, so much want to dissociate love from fear. And it's a dangerous, dangerous game. Love is meant to be filled with fear and trouble and difficulty. Love is meant to be like that. When you, even in the smallest of relationships, when you love someone, there is always fear there because they can hurt you. They will hurt you. There's always that trouble that when your love is separated out, that it will cause you heartbreak and pain. And God says, if you truly love me, you've got to know that if you ever separate from me, there will be heartache and pain for you unlike you've never experienced before. 
we should always remember that when only viewing God through the good things that he gives to us, we stop loving God for who he is and we only love God for what he gives. That's it. We start placing the things that he gives us before God, but you should always fear the Lord. And we, of all people, know this because when we see the love of God, we can never dissociate where we see the love of God from his wrath, his anger, and his justice because his love is demonstrated on the cross of Jesus Christ for us who was unwilling to simply forgive us without taking upon his own son his wrath and his anger for the sin of his own people. He would rather punish his son and the son would rather take the full force of the wrath and the anger of God than to simply forgive people because that's how much God hates sin. So whenever we talk about the love of God, we know more than anyone else that it comes with wrath and anger and frustration and hatred for sin. To love God is to fear him as well. Secondly, we must destroy the Lord's enemies. We must destroy the Lord's enemies. We read most difficultly in chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. Let's be very clear. This is an incredibly difficult part of the Old Testament. God is calling for no less than the genocide of seven distinct nations. And let's throw a little bit of fire on top of that because he's not just calling for the men of war to be kicked out. He is calling for women to be destroyed and children, all of them, are to be put to the sword. Every single one. Now this is nice fodder for a whole bunch of people who want to look and they want to claim that the God of the Old Testament, no matter what we say in the New Testament, we're going to get there, the God of the Old Testament is a murderous, wrathful monster. We know the genocide is wrong today. We just got done talking about it in Sunday school. We don't have genocides today, and those who commit genocide like this, we shake our heads at and wonder how evil they could be. And yet in the Old Testament, God is upholding this genocide. Well, what do we have to say about it? We have a couple of things to say. First, this passage will come up again. The thrust of people to be killed in the promised land will come up again. They are not simply to be expelled from the promised land, but they are to be destroyed within it. And in chapter 9, in verse 5, he says specifically why. 
Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. It is not as though these were innocent people. God says, one of the reasons why I'm driving them out is because they are awfully wicked before me. They are wicked and they deserve judgment. So we aren't to sit back and to think that God is unjust in what he does simply because it's genocide. We know that God has just reasons for committing this act. Secondly, this is clearly a limited command by God. God is not saying to people flatly, you are to go and you are to kill anyone who does not confess my name. This is not that kind of command you are not commanded to take the sword to the infidel. That is not the command of God. This is a one-time act when they take the promised land. That is backed up by numerous and repeated pushings for the people of Israel to love the foreigner and the sojourner in their land. When you have people come into your land who do not know me, who are from foreign nations, who are sojourners, you are to take them in. You are to protect them and make sure that you do everything you can for their good because you yourselves were foreigners and sojourners in the land of Egypt. So it isn't simply because God hates everyone who isn't Israel. It is specifically in chapter 9 because these people were wicked. But you'll notice that that is not what chapter 7 says. Chapter 7 turns around and talks not about the wickedness of the people, but of God's choosing of Israel. He says this in verse 6. For you, not, not any more about those seven nations, but you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not. So why? Why did God choose Israel? It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of the peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, a faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generation and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him, He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. He says, it's less to do with their wickedness and more to do with the fact that I love you. It is a protection for his people. The people who dwell on that land, as he says, you're not to give your sons or your daughters away in marriage and you're not to take their daughters in marriage because... It is a protection for you. Those people will lead you astray. And I have not chosen them. They are not my chosen people, but you are. He doesn't say it is because you are better people. He doesn't say it's because you are more righteous. He doesn't say it's because you are good. Because I found in Abraham a DNA strand that makes him love me so much more than everybody else. And I find that same DNA strand in you. So it's his offspring who are special and chosen amongst me because you're simply better people. He says, that's not it at all. I chose you because I loved you. That is unmitigated, 
unadulterated choice. He simply chose. There was nothing in you, Israel, that deserved it. There was nothing in you that was good. There was nothing in you that God chose you above all the peoples. As a matter of fact, you were the least of all peoples. I simply chose you because I wanted to. That's why you're to drive them out. God's election of them meant that his love was upon them, not because they were greater in number, more righteous, or that they had any quality that God should want, but simply because he loved them. God, therefore, wanted their protection. The people around Israel would be a catalyst for their sin. It would speed up its production and lead them into God's wrath. But listen, catalysts only do what is already inevitable. Catalysts don't make things happen that wouldn't have already happened. They are a catalyst for the sin. They are not the cause of it. Israel's falling away. Israel's sinning against God and being devoid of the right to the land was inevitable. Moses already knows it. He's already foretold it back in chapter 4 and it's going to come again in chapter 30. When Israel is finally kicked out of the land, all those centuries later, it should come as an absolute surprise to no one. Moses foretells it. The people that surrounded them might have pushed them out sooner had they stayed. But nevertheless, nevertheless, they were only a catalyst for what was always going to happen. While the nations that surrounded Israel would be a catalyst for their sins, their greatest enemy was always themselves. Sin was always lurking deep in their hearts which no amount of physical destruction of their enemies would ever take away. And while this was a protection for Israel, it was never a fail-safe. This was never going to fix their ultimate problem. This is the main thrust of Deuteronomy. The people would fail, but God would be good to his promises, giving them what they needed, which in chapter 30 is circumcised hearts. He will call you back from the nations that you've been driven to and he will give you a circumcised heart. This is the, the foundation of the promise, not only of Deuteronomy 30, but of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that you will have a new creation. There will be a new heart given to you. You will have a spirit placed within you. This is the promise of Joel, of all of the prophets, that God will do something that will make you obey him. He will keep you from having this failure in you. He will do away with your sin. We are a new creation. Therefore, we know that the physical removal of our enemies does not keep us pure, it doesn't keep us holy, and that the use of the sword cannot bring about the kingdom that we long for. This was a one-time act by God that we do not follow anymore. But there are a couple of New Testament passages that talk about how we still defeat God's enemies. Deuteronomy, or excuse me, that's where we are, but we are going to be in 1 Corinthians 5. Listen to how Paul talks about discipline within the church in 1 Corinthians 5 and how it rings true for the same kind of thought that you are to protect your people from enemies, the enemy now fully and foremost being sin. 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. 
And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's destruction language. That's the same language that Deuteronomy uses. You are to go into the land and you are to destroy them. The land is now the church. You are to expel them from your midst so that you might be holy before God. But more than that, you are to hand him over for destruction that he might be saved. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He says, that little bit of leaven that that man had, that sin that was there, would have infected a whole host of people. And it would have brought them down for protection of the people so that you do not fall away from God as well. You expel him. That is the same type of language that is used in Deuteronomy. We do not fight flesh and blood, but we fight the devil and we fight sin and we fight it in our midst. This is war language. Notice then in verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. When I said you were not to associate with people who are sexually immoral, I didn't mean that you should be raptured. You have to go out of the world to have that. God has you in the world for a reason. The war that we are fighting now and the destruction that we are reaping on people is a destruction of sin. It is not a destruction of lives. There is grace given to all now through Jesus Christ, who not only has come to redeem Israel, but to redeem all nations, everyone from people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. But of course, we know that this will also happen. Finally and fully, there will be a day when our Lord returns, and he will take the land for himself. In Revelation 19, we read in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and... Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There will be a destruction of the people. There will be a physical removal of the enemies of God from the nations, but that will not be by us. That will be by our Lord. Notice then the final vision in the book of Revelation. 
And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and its height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure as gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the, th the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. The streets of the city were pure, pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw in the, no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And the lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Why? Why go through laying out a city so big and so glorious with walls that are so high if you're going to leave its gates open all the time? The gates are not open because people can then rush into them from the nations. The gates are open because there are no enemies left. Our Lord will take care of our enemies. We are here to give them as much grace as we can through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we are able to forgive, but we certainly do not forget or neglect that there is sin in our lives and in the lives of those who we love, and so we discipline ourselves for it. Notice the protection that this has for God's people. The question then is, why doesn't God just come down and shower fire and wrath upon the people? Why doesn't he just wipe out all of the people? Why does he use Israel to do it? If it's his wrath, why use his people to do it slowly over time and not simply destroy them all in one fair swipe so that people of Israel can have an easier time coming into the land? He says this, If you say in your heart, back in Deuteronomy 7, verse 17, these nations are greater than I. How can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid? Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. And you shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst. He is a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations from before you, little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. He says, I'm protecting you, you see? The reason why he has to call on the nation to do it is so that they will take it piece by piece, city by city. Because if he did it all at once, by the time they got there, the vineyards would be overrun. The trees would be destroyed. Wild beasts would be in the land. And people would have to fight all the harder to make what was already there and set up by God good again. But God protects his people and is patient with them and takes them slowly through the land, fighting for them 
all of the way. Please know that to love the Lord your God, you must also destroy the Lord's enemies. But thirdly, you must trust the Lord's provision. Chapter 8, just as chapter 6, has an incredibly important and famous verse in 6.4. Chapter 8 has another incredibly important and famous verse in 8.3. Chapter 8 begins, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply, go in and possess the land that the Lord your God swore to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, that you would keep his commandments, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. When we hear that verse, we should automatically think of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. Satan shows up. He says, hey, you know, look around. There are rocks here. You should make some of this rock into bread and feed yourself. And Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the, the mouth of God. And you think, oh man, that's, that's, that's a mighty good word. Most of us, however, think that what he's doing is saying, because God hasn't commanded me to do this, or, or that there's somehow a command that says you can't turn rocks into bread. That somehow turning rocks into bread would have been sinful for Jesus. But listen to how this whole thing is phrased in Deuteronomy 8. He says, I took you out and I led you through the wilderness to humble you. I took you from a land that was good in Egypt, taking you to a land that was better. But in order to do that, I ran you through the wilderness for 40 years, a wilderness that could not support you. It couldn't support one of you, let alone a million of you, as I took you out and walked you around. And what did I do? I fed you. I kept you. I didn't let anything bad happen to you. When you needed water, I brought forth water. When you asked for meat, I gave you pheasant. When you asked for food, I brought manna down from heaven. You had never even heard of manna, so I did it for you anyway, just to show you that I provide for you. You do not live by food and water and shelter alone. You live only because I say you live. He talks about how carefully God has trusted himself to them, that he has protected them, that he has walked alongside them. They are never to trust in the things that they can get. He says this in verse 11, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full, and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, 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 then your heart be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you out 
brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, to do good to you in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. He says, you're going to go in and you're going to eat and you're going to drink and you're going to have your full and you're going to think, I don't need anything to have a good life. I can do it on my own. He says, beware, because your life does not consist of putting food in your mouth, water in your mouth, breathing in air through your nose, or having shelter over your head. Your life is there because I give it to you. And if you fail in that, I will destroy you. We are to trust the Lord's provision. We are to trust the Lord's provision. Every meal, when you get together, you pray and thank God for the food. Not because, not because you love mama's meatloaf so much. You should, though. She makes really good meatloaf. But it's not because of that. It's because you know, you know that this food on your plate is not everything you need to live. You need to recognize every moment of the day that it is God who gives you life and breath and all things. It is God who is good to you and gives you every good gift under the sun whether that's mom's meatloaf or whether it's a huge burrito. It doesn't matter what kind of food it is. If it's given to you, you praise God for it because he is good in giving it to you. And the blessings that God pours out can very easily turn into pride. He says, I've humbled you when I took you out there. I gave you nothing. I took you to a land that was barren that was thirsty for water and wouldn't give you any food, and I fed you so that you would know that I keep you alive. The reversal of that is lifting up your heart, he says. It's not humbling yourself, it's pride. This is the same thought that later will get Israel to turn to her neighbors in times of troubles and say, come and help me, because we trust in chariots and horses. God says, no, I protect you. No amount of chariots, no amount of horses is ever going to protect you. When I bring the nations down upon you, it is only your trust in me that will save you. This is the thrust of Habakkuk when he says, the righteous shall live by faith. They don't live by trusting in what their hands can do. They live by trusting in what God has done for them. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. But the great promise of Scripture is both that we do not and indeed cannot love the Lord as we ought. It is not in your ability to love the Lord that way. It is not in your ability to keep the fear of God before you. It is not in your ability to destroy the enemies that you really have that keep you from him. It is not in your ability to trust him as you ought. Your heart is not built like that. It is corrupted by the fall. The great promise of Scripture is both that you cannot do this and secondly, that God will do it. Therefore, we who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the good work that he has done on the cross and in the provision of his spirit, we can now, because we are a new creation with new hearts, love God truly. We can now offer forgiveness to our enemies. As Christ says, you are not to hate your enemy, but you are to love them. We can do that now because we know what forgiveness looks like in Christ. We can now offer 
our trust fully to God and his provision for us before he has given that which we needed most. Hearts that beat for him, that long for him, that will love him with all of our heart, mind, strength, soul, and body, every fiber that we have, so that there might be no God before our God. Let's pray. Father God, you are good to us. And we rightly come to you this morning, praising you, giving you glory for your goodness and your grace. And Father, we do thank you for the good things that you give to us, for we know of your wrath. That is never out of our sight, for we know Christians of all people in this world know what it is to be evil to be sinful before you. We know because we have attempted to love you with our heart, mind, body, and soul that we do not always. So we are grateful, Father, so grateful for the work that Jesus Christ did as the new Adam. That we are not stuck with an old heart of stone, but that he has given us a flesh heart one that beats for you, that has the law written upon it, that we might seek you and love you with everything that we are that we might be able to worship you night and day in that new city that you are building. We're grateful, Father, for your gift to us, but we cannot do it on our own. We ask, Father, that you are then gracious to us and merciful. You give us a spirit of repentance always, seeking forgiveness for our sins, that we might love you with all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.